A rentier economy is one that is fundamentally prone uh, to stagnation, low levels of innovation, and ultimately low levels of, of productivity growth and output growth. So the system is designed to sort of encourage asset sweating rather than economic renewal. This is the Dependance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. My name is Geert Maarsen and today we will be talking to one of those thought leaders. A professor of social and economic geography at Uppsala University in Sweden, Brad Christophers. Thijs, you stumbled across Brad first, right? A couple of years ago, I guess? Yeah, a few years ago, I read two articles in the London Review of Books and uh, The Guardian on his previous book in 2018. It was published. It was called The New Enclosure. And it is about the biggest privatization of all, privatization of land, the massive transfer of public land into private control, a privatization that's both in, in, in value and in scope is dwarfing all other privatizations, the privatization of utilities, the privatization of of gas, the privatization of electricity, the privatization of our railways. And nobody has been paying attention. And since then, he has been broadening his argument, right? Saying it's not privatization we should fear. It's not financialization we should fear. If we truly want to understand what's wrong with modern day capitalism, we are in need of a new term, right? Yes, and he calls it rent your capitalism, which is also the title of his latest book, um, in which he tries to answer the question who owns the economy, who benefits, and who pays for it. And in his book, he shows us how the explosion of rent-seeking businesses has led to growing wealth and income inequality, to declining productivity and innovation, and to falling investment. An economy that is focused on one thing and one thing only, ownership. Brad, thank you so much for joining us today from Uppsala University in Sweden. We're going to talk about your book, Rentier Capitalism. We're going to talk about the rentier economy, about its, its implications, about its detrimental consequences and ramifications. But before we delve into the subject matter itself, where and how did your exploration of the rentier economy start? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say that the, this book sort of emerged semi-spontaneously out of two of the previous books that I've written. So I've written a fair amount on finance and I guess finance capitalism. And I wrote a book in back in 2013 that was really about uh, kind of that, that financial aspect of capitalism and and the kind of central role of, of banks and financial institutions more generally in, in contemporary capitalism. Called, and that was called Banking Across Boundaries. And then in 2018, I wrote a book about land and specifically about the privatization of land in the UK over the last 30 or 40 years. And one thing that became very apparent in that book is that land and property more generally, including both residential and commercial property, are very important income generating assets for 
the UK's, what we might call the UK's rentier class today. And so I'd already touched on, in those two books, I'd already looked at two very, very important um, sectors of the economy where what I refer to as, as rents are being generated on a significant scale. Uh, and, in doing, and in doing that work, it had, it had become increasingly apparent to me that finance and, and land slash property are actually only two parts of a much broader story about rent and rentiers within the economy generally, but the UK economy specifically. And so writing those books sort of prompted me to think much more generally about rent and the nature of the rentier and the and the the kind of the broader role of of rents and rentiers within the economy, specifically in the UK, but also more generally. So that's that's kind of where it came from. So it, it kind of emerged spontaneously out of having worked on those previous projects. You say in the book that we can talk about financialization, we can talk about neoliberalism, we can talk about all kinds of critique on uh, current Western economies and how mm -hmm. they are organized. But then you say we are in urgent need for a new term uh, to understand what's going on. And why is it that rentier capitalism is, is the term to understand what's going on and has been going on for the last decades? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, a, that's, a, that's another really good question. Uh, and you're and you're right that we have a kind of a superabundance of terms that um, have been used increasingly um, in recent years and in, indeed in recent decades to understand what's happened to, to Western capitalism, in, in particular since the end of the 1970s. So a lot of people talk about, obviously, about neoliberalism. And you're right that a lot of people also talk about financialization. And, and I guess the argument of the book um, is that... Um, Both of those terms refer to very important and very real phenomena. The idea of, of, of rentier capitalism, or what I refer to as rentierization, the rentierization of the economy, denotes something different. And I think what, what is interesting and I think and hopefully helpful is to kind of identify how I see the connections between those phenomena. So what I refer to as rentierization is, 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 the, is a process whereby different forms of rent generation and we can come back to what those the, the the kind of the array of those different forms are have become increasingly important within the economy to the extent that in a in an economy like the UK's rent generation becomes almost the, the central part of the economy the economy is 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 predominantly about different forms of rent generation and One thing of reason I say that's important is that I discuss that to kind of sympathetically critique the argument that what has happened to Western capitalism in recent decades is that it's become financialized. So there's this very broad argument out there, which is that if you look at economies like the UK and also the US, perhaps even more so, lots of scholars have argued that what's happened is that those economies have become financialized. And what they one of the things they mean by that is that they've become dominated by financial mechanisms of generating profit. So finance has become kind of the central part of the economy. And what I'm saying in the book is that, sure, finance has absolutely become much more important in economies like the UK and the US. It's definitely become a bigger part of the economy. But so also have other sectors become increasingly important. And in fact, in, a, in an economy like the UK's, Sectors like real estate 
the the they have grown more significantly in recent decades than finance have. And there are also various other sectors that have grown significantly in importance in recent decades, as much or almost as much or more than finance. And what I'm arguing is that all of those sectors that have become more and more important, what they share is that is is that they are rontier type sectors. And so therefore I argue that financialization is kind of part of but not the totality of this broader transformation of the economy. It's, all, it's, it's kind of one term I use. It's like the leading edge of rontierization rather than the totality thereof. So that's the relationship between financialization and rontierization. Financialization is part of rontierization. It's one of a series of vectors of transformation, all of which are about the increasing importance of rent of various types. Neoliberalism. Um, what I what I argue there is that is that in the UK and and I'm sure the same argument could be developed in different ways and to different degrees for different territories. In the UK, there have been a, you know there have clearly been a whole series of shifts in policy and governments in relation to things like monetary policy and fiscal policy and other areas in recent decades that have put in place the conditions for rontierization to occur. So there have been a series of interventions by uh, governments and regulators and other kind of bodies of officialdom that have enabled the rontier to flourish across sectors in the way that I discuss in the book. And what I suggest is that that kind of, that kind of bundle of interventions, of policy interventions, that's what we refer to as neoliberalism. So in a sense, neoliberalism is the set of policies and practices that have created the soil for the flourishing of the of the rentier. So that's how I discuss the relations between, or at least try to discuss the relations between neoliberalism and rentier capitalism. You define rent as income derived from the exclusive ownership or control of a scarce asset of some kind. We're talking about renting a house or making money by patenting, let's say, a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, you would say that this could be fundamental in the functioning of a healthy economy. So what is wrong with it? The critique I offer is a, is, is, is a fundamentally political economic critique, and, it's, and it simply says, what are the consequences of rentier domination of an economy such as the UK for different constituencies within that economy, for the economy at large, and also for the main interest groups within the economy, capital, labour, um, um, and others. And in the book, I point to two sets of two primary sets of consequences, uh, but which are connected to one another, and which I, I argue are fundamentally deleterious. The, the first set of consequences are for the economy as a whole. And what I argue is that is that, and, and this is certainly not necessarily a novel argument, uh, but I think I take it in new directions. What I argue is that. A rentier economy is one that is fundamentally prone uh, to stagnation, low levels of, in of investment, low levels of innovation, and ultimately low levels of, of productivity growth and output growth. Uh, and the data bear that out for the UK. All of those metrics have been declining uh, in recent times as the UK economy has rentierized. And that's because there's a whole series of incentives built into the rentier economy in, in a place like the UK, which incentivize the owners 
of these uh, monopoly controlled assets to effectively sweat those assets and do what they can to enable their existing assets to continue to throw off cash rather than actually investing in innovating and in producing new new products and services. Maybe it would be insightful to dive into an example here, Brett. In your book on, I think, the first page, you start talking about Arkiva, which is a huge private company in the UK. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about them and why they are so symbolic for the rentier economy. Yeah, so... Um you know, so Arkiva, for 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 the, for the sake of listeners, is a company that owns uh, and controls various telecommunications infrastructures of various kinds. Um, but you can think of other examples as well. So, you know, pharmaceutical patent holders. If you look at the detail, um, the government in the UK and regulators in the UK that that are involved in both of those sectors have actually done very little to encourage uh, investment in, you know, in the case of telecommunications. In, in upgrading and improving telecommunications infrastructures in recent decades. And, and the telephony uh, infrastructure is a, is a classic case of that. You know, fiber rollout in the UK is far behind everywhere else in Europe, precisely because of a lack of proper incentives being built into the system. Those incentives encourage existing owners of existing extant networks to kind of eke every last penny out of those networks rather than being incentivized to develop new networks. And I think the same, you know, the, the same sorts of motivations apply in the context of patents, where you know the incentives are towards extending existing patents through various um, mechanisms of what is referred to as evergreening, so extending the life of those existing patents rather than investing in developing new products and uh, new products protected by new, you know, potentially protected by new patents. So the system is designed to sort of encourage asset sweating rather than economic renewal and yeah. i think that you know the data across the economy in the uk bear that out so partly the argument is that rentierism is, is actually not good for capitalism right you know and, and that's one reason why you know very similar critiques to the one to this that one i make you, you can hear very similar critiques maybe not in the same using the same terms but from commentators across the economic and political spectrum you know people like martin wolf at the financial times have been making very similar arguments that um, you know, rentier capitalism is not good for capitalism. It may be good for individual capitals, individual firms that happen to be in control of those exclusive assets who are doing just fine, but it's not healthy for capital across the board or therefore for capitalism as a kind of a, a you know, a healthy system of growth and economic reproduction. So that's that argument. The other, the other main argument I make is ultimately about inequality is, is kind of, structurally predisposed to generating increased levels of both income and wealth inequality. Uh, and so we can, you know, briefly, it's, I think it's worth discussing the, a little bit at length because it's, a, you know, it's a key argument of the book and we can split that into income and wealth inequality. So on the, in, on the income side, the argument I make is that, you know, is that, is that rentier capitalism tends to see um, an exacerbation of the, of the uh, difference between high income earners and low income owners. And there's a, and there, there's a, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that if you look at rentier capitalist, rentier companies, the uh, disparity between uh, incomes at the top of the hierarchy within those companies and, and at the bottom 
tend to be higher than across the economy more generally. And there's, and there's interesting data that show that. So rentier capitalist institutions in and of themselves are very, very unequal institutions. Um, the, another important reason that you get high levels of, in, of income inequality is goes back to something we, we touched on earlier, which is the fact that many individuals are also rentiers. So those people who are, uh, you know, those people working um, at rentier capitalist, you know, not necessarily just at rentier capitalist institutions, but other 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 capitalist companies as well, who are the high income earners, are also today rentiers who have, you know, significant holdings of financial assets, but also in a place like the UK, significant holdings of residential property assets. They're landlords owning, you know, two, three, four, or more properties that they that they rent out specifically to those people at the bottom of the of the income hierarchy and so there's a there's at least two and there are more that i discuss in the book there's at least two really significant mechanisms that mean that in a rentier uh, economic system you get this exacerbation of underlying income inequalities in terms of wealth inequality this is where i you know i, I i'm really in, in, indebted to, to to the piketty book to his first book because while he doesn't necessarily put it in his terms, his whole, you know, his fundamental argument that he makes in that book is an argument about rentierism. You know, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, he argues that, you know, unless, you know, unless, uh, that, well, let's put it another way. He argues that um, typically under capitalism, you get growing wealth inequality because of this, because of this fundamental disparity between what he just calls R and G. They're his two metrics, right? And so he says that generally under capitalism, except for a brief period in the middle of the in the middle of the twentieth century, R is greater than G. Now R is the ret- is the return on existing stocks of assets. That's rent. That's 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 the re- the return on existing stock of assets is is rent. So that's his metric for rent. And he argues that typically R, which is rent, which is the the I guess the rent as a as a percentage uh, figure for the return on the existing stock of capital tends to be higher than G, which is the rate of economic growth in the economy. And what he argues is that where R is, is greater than G, which it typically tends to be, you inevitably get grow, higher levels of wealth inequality because incomes are, not growing as, incomes are not growing as rapidly as the returns on those existing assets that rentiers are earning. And so what I argue is that you know if, if in general... R is greater than G, then R tends to be specifically greater than G, and that and the kind of the discrepancy between them tends to be highest precisely in a rentier economy where R is inflated by all the, all the sorts of mechanisms that I've begun to touch on earlier that encourage rentierism and that that enable rentierism to pay and things like you know particular tax incentives are are very very central there. So in a sense, what I argue is that you is that the UK has become almost like has provided almost kind of like laboratory perfect conditions for Piketty's what he calls the fundamental relationship of capitalism of R over G to work itself out. You know, if R is greater than G in general in capitalism, it's it's particularly greater than G in the UK in the, in recent decades. And you therefore get, as Piketty shows, increasing levels of wealth inequality as well as increasing levels of income inequality. Yeah, you call the UK in the book a rentier's paradise. Um, yes. And at the same time, you also write that there's nothing natural about the acceleration of rentierization. How can you 
actually explain the rentierization of the UK economy? I mean, it didn't come about by itself. No, it it, it didn't. Um, um, and as I said, as I said earlier, you know, if you wanted to use one word to explain what's happened, then that word would be neoliberalism. So the interventions that have uh, been made that have helped the Rontier flourish, that have ex- that have enabled Rontierism to become the central feature of the UK economy, that what we typically refer to as neoliberalism is it. And so I break that down into, into three or four components in the book, all of which are about answering the question, you know, why has the UK been such a sort of bounteous territory for the Rontier? And so the first of those is that there are simply more assets available than elsewhere. And that's ultimately about privatization. You know, a lot of the assets today that Rontier individuals and Rontier companies in the UK earn rents on are assets that used to be earned, owned by the public sector, but which have been privatized in recent decades. And as I'm sure you and many of your listeners will know, the UK has, you know, has arguably gone further down the privatization road, you know, with greater gusto than almost any other territory you can think of. So more assets have been privatized, meaning that there are more assets out there today for private sector entities to earn rents on. You know, land is a classic example of that. You know, going back to my previous book that I mentioned, you know, huge quantities of land and in particular residential property have been privatized in recent decades. Can you be more specific, Brad? Since when has this been going on? Yeah, so since the, you know, since basically since Thatcher's Conservatives came to power at the beginning of the 1980s. So if you go back to the end of the 1970s, roughly 20% of of land in Britain was owned by the public sector. Today, it's about 10%. So half of the public sector land that was owned um, uh, 30 or 40 years ago has since been has since been privatized. And it's tended to have been the most valuable land, urban land, housing land that has been privatized. So it's been an enormous transfer of wealth to the private sector and specifically to rentiers who today let that property out and earn earn rents on it. Would you fundamentally reject the transfer of assets from the public domain to the private sector then? No, I wouldn't fundamentally disagree with it. I would say that I would say two things. I would say, uh, first of all, the evidence that assets are I'd say three things, actually. First of all, the evidence that assets are more efficiently utilized in the private sector is patchy. You know, I, I think there's there's plenty of evidence that, that suggests that, you know, the private sector has been has been utterly inefficient at the own, in the ownership and operation of certain assets. But but I'm sure that there are certain assets where it has been more efficient. I'd say the second thing I'd say is efficiency isn't everything that, you know, there are there are other motivations that can and arguably should guide the allocation and, and, and operation of different resources in society rather than efficiency versus inefficiency. And the third and most important one is that, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is that you know even where assets have been u- have been utilised more efficiently by the private sector, so there's a big question about where the efficiency gains get captured. And the issue there is that because of the way in which privatisation has been regulated and 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 managed within the UK, essentially all of those efficient all of the efficiency gains that have been realised have been captured by particular class interests. They haven't been shared across the board. They haven't been realized by consumers. They've been captured by a very 
small capitalist class that owns and controls those assets. The only other thing I wanted to say there about privatization is it's not just land and property that have been privatized and that have generated these, you know, this vast swathe of rent generating assets. You know, a big other part of the privatization story is obviously infrastructure. So, you know, all of the you know all of the big enterprises that was that were privatized in the 1980s and 1990s in the UK most of those were enterprises that were asset based enterprises so british telecom when it was privatized the telecommunications infrastructure was privatized along with it and became a rent generating asset when all the local water boards uh, were privatized uh, then the water distribution infrastructures were privatized along with it and when the electricity and gas transmission and distribution operators were were privatized their transmission and distribution networks were privatized along with them and all of those network infrastructures have become rent generating assets for their owners and controllers in the decades since and they actually constitute uh, the bulk of of the infrastructure rentiers and rents that i analyze in one of the chapters of the book so so more assets that's the first part of this you know that's a long-winded answer to your question about you know why the uk has been a you know has been this, a centerpiece of this story and, and what does the uk case tell us about sweden or the netherlands i mean you're based in sweden i don't know what you know about the netherlands about the specific situation here but what does it tell about other western economies well i mean i think before before trying to sort of hazard an answer to that question i briefly want to point to a couple of the other things that have that have made the uk a, you know a, a particularly fertile territory for this because so, it's not just about there being more assets it's also about the fact that those assets are particularly well protected particularly from competition so you have you know very weakly enforced competition law that um that protects asset owners from meaningful competition in terms of in terms of earning rents on their assets you have you know very strongly protected intellectual property rights that mean again that those assets are very strongly protected from any form of potential competition and then the other thing that you have is that it's you know in the UK as as much as anywhere else um you know those assets more readily generate income than in other countries and a big part of the reason for that is because of favorable tax policies of various types so you have very generous capital gains tax policies in the UK which mean that you that you know the owners of assets pay pay very low taxes in terms of asset based taxes and also within particular sectors you have very very generous tax treatments for example in terms of intellectual property terms of oil and gas production which is another big rentier sector so you have very very favorable to tax treatments as well so all in all the UK is this kind of the reason it's become this rentier capitalist society is that you have you know more assets better protected better able to generate income without the tax man taking uh, his or her share of that income in in terms of other countries what i argue in the book is that you know the uk is a, is a is a quintessential case of this story but what i suggest is that for sure aspects of the story if not the story in its totality apply to other countries as well i don't i don't look at other countries in the book but what i you know what i hope is that people reading the book you know from the perspective of other countries will see elements of the story uh, that i tell 
reflected in their own territories that they're more familiar with because you know just think about some of the things that I've been that I've been talking about in in recent minutes um you know privatization is not a uk only story um you know f- favorable tax treatment you know in terms of the eradication of wealth taxes is not a, is not just a uk story look at the look at sweden you know 2007 sweden got rid of all inheritance taxes and all property and wealth taxes all of them so you know you know this might jar with a lot of listeners understanding of sweden but sweden arguably across the you know, across the across the western world now nowhere is the tax treatment of wealth and property and assets more generous than it is in sweden today you know certainly you know the us has property taxes for god's sake sweden doesn't anymore so you know absolutely the story is relevant elsewhere Brad, in the book, you also consider rents derived from intellectual property, such as patented medications. Uh, mm. Of course, we know that then, that now two listed pharma giants, Pfizer and Moderna, are the frontrunners for what seems like an effective vaccine. Mm. Can rentierism in a very in very specific cases also be a force for for innovation and acceleration? I mean, can it be uh, can it be a force for good in this particular respect, or do you see that differently? Yeah, it's a good, you know, it's a good, it's a good question that it was interesting when, when those vaccines would have been developed recently and when it became clear that, that success had been made of them, there were, you know, there were a couple of pieces, for example, published in the Guardian in the UK, one, I think by Owen Jones, which was, a, which struck me as a very kind of knee jerk, sort of a little bit unreflective attack on kind of intellectual property in general, which was like, well, you know, uh, they're just riding the coattails of, of the of the public sector, and you know it was just a, it was kind of almost kind of typical um, corporate bashing. Um, you know, and I th- you know I'm not I'm not sure that those kind of critiques are necessarily very helpful. The point I would make is that in a country such as the UK, what the evidence suggests is that it is that the protections extended to intellectual property have been broadened and strengthened so far that. It becomes almost counterproductive in insofar as what it doesn't do, you know, to the extent that it encourages innovation and new uh, and new products and services being generated. Much more than that, it encourages what we've been describing as rent seeking. It encourages companies to spend much more time and money on kind of trying to extend existing patent protections and fighting attempts for, you know, generics to be admitted to the marketplace than it does on actually investing in, in new products and services. So the system has become, it's, 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 it's gone too far down, it's gone too far down that road towards kind of cosseting intellectual property owners. And therefore it actually isn't really serving the purpose, which, you know, arguably, you know, the original inventors of intellectual property systems intended, which was that it served as a motivation to entrepreneurs to to generate new products and services you know, you know the argument was always well you know if we don't if if they can't protect their their new products and services from uh, from defense against uh, competitors they won't produce those new products and services in the first place and i think that that now it's not it's not serving those purposes or if it is serving those purposes it's servicing other it's serving other purposes much more and, and you only have to look at kind of the the, the proliferation of things like patent trolls and non non practicing entities to see that. So I think that's that's the critique, which is that it's kind of 
it's it's gone too far down that road uh, towards you know cosseting the existing owners of those assets rather than encouraging or fermenting the kind of innovation that it, that it's supposed to encourage in the first place. Right, you mentioned the the, the rise of rentier capitalism in the, in the last decades. Where are we in the coming of age story of rentier capitalism at the moment? Oh, that's a difficult question. I mean, my my blunt and honest answer to that question to my question to that question is I don't know. My my guess is that you know it's it's hard to think about this except on a territory by territory basis. You know, I think I think in the UK case. The UK is is at you know a, a really significant and in many ways quite worrying sort of inflection point in its economic you know not to mention its political history you know where Brexit is arriving at a time where the UK economy was already incredibly weak for all the reasons that I've tried to identify and that I talk about in the book which are related to to the rentier dominance of the economy and then you throw on top of that you know the pandemic and the effect that that's had on the UK economy which which just seems to have sort of uh, intensified both of the dynamics that I was talking about firstly in terms of a lack of investment and lack of growth and secondly in terms of of trends towards greater inequality and if you throw brexit on top of that it makes for an even you know an even more troubling story in many ways and i suppose what i suppose what history shows in in those in those types of in those types of circumstances is that unless you get um is is that is that when things get bad enough <laughs> either through kind of war or depression or whatever else it might be you get some kind of rowing back from that um extreme position but there are no signs of that happening yet i don't think in the uk you know maybe if labor had got in mm-hmm. under jeremy corbyn you know things things would have been done to you know to kind of if not extensively then at least meaningfully derontierize the economy you know not least through more progressive tax policies on wealth and assets and, and in particular through you know through ownership transformations you know if, you know rentier capitalism is ultimately about ownership it's about private ownership of assets being the default model whatever those assets are and i think that you know a meaningful a meaningful rowing back away from the kind of deep rentierization of the economy would absolutely require ownership you know meaningful ownership transformations of some kind whereby you know both in terms of both in terms of new assets that get created but also in terms of existing assets where more assets would have to be owned not privately some would have to be owned by the by the public sector be that you know uh, uh, infrastructures of you know water and wastewater delivery you know the railway infrastructure potentially but not just by the public sector you know also in terms of community ownership or employee ownership of firms but certainly community ownership of, of, of you know land for example or of local energy infrastructures uh, so i think uh, ultimately ownership transformations will have to would have to be a central part of this but there's you know right now under the you know the under the exif- existing political conditions in the uk there's no signs of that happening and i you know from my uh, perspective it's, in, it's almost impossible to see things getting better for the majority of the population in the uk you know while rentier capitalist institutions retain their grip on ownership of the economy 
We're talking about the revolving door between politics and, and finance. How how worried are you about, for example, now two former BlackRock executives, the, the biggest fund manager in the world, stepping into the Biden administration? How concerned are you with the, the rentier's influence on politics? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you only have to go back to... You know what happened in the in the immediate wake of the financial of the global financial crisis. You know in the U.S. You know to to be pretty pessimistic about it. You know Obama Obama came to power with a pretty much a clean slate. He had you know he had no he, he was not tainted at all by you know what had happened in the run up in the run up to the financial crisis, and he had you know very broad support to take meaningful action. You know to first of all to you know to help. Uh, homeowners who were, you know, who in their millions were losing homes and to sort of clamp down on the financial sector. But, you know, who did he put in charge? He put in charge Timothy Geithner, who was, a, you know, who was a complete insider and who failed dismally to do anything meaningful to help homeowners. And I think, you know, I think that, you know, Obama's failure on the foreclosure crisis is, you know, was was one of the great stains on on his administration. He turned out to be a friend of Wall Street, and I think it's naive in the extreme to be any to imagine that Biden is going to turn out to be anything but a friend of Wall Street either. You know, his campaign was you know you talked about BlackRock, but you know his his campaign was funded significantly by Blackstone executives as well. You know who who covered their bases. Stephen Schwartzman, the um, chief executive of Blackstone, he funded Trump. I think he was Trump's biggest donor. Um, Jonathan Gray, who's the chief operating officer and president of Blackstone, he funded Biden. So they were, you know, they were going to win any which way. So I think it's, you know, it's to imagine that that Biden's going to do anything meaningful to to sort of make a dent in in the you know in the rentier edifice of the U.S. economy is is pretty far fetched. And what do you think of the role of the EU in this respect? I mean, do you think they could step up to counter this trend? Yeah, that's a good, you know, that's a good, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. What I do know is that if you, you know, if you look at, you know, one of the big rentier sectors that I talk about in the book is, is, is the platform economy and in particular digital platforms. And the argument I make there is that, you know, these are, you know, these are rentiers as well. They are rentiers because they control vital assets, which are the platforms per se. And they make money by essentially into, you know, the, the key role that they play is as, is as intermediaries they control the terms of trade and the locus of trade between buyers and sellers of different types of products and services and they make money by taking commissions or making fees on that whether it's you know connecting advertisers to suppliers or whether it's connecting in the case of you know eBay for example you know buyers of commodities to sellers of commodities and you know going back to the EU you know the e EU is the only significant Western political economic institution that has tried in any meaningful way to clip the wings of, of the Google of Google and the likes and the likes through you know through for example competition policy UK US competition policy makers have done nothing to to try to to you know to arrest the um, accumulation of monopoly power that that Google and others have been have been building in in recent you know over the last couple of decades. And the EU Competition Commission is the only EU Commission is the only body that has actually done that. So maybe there's some hope there. Um, certainly, I think there's probably more hope there than there is 
than there is in terms of looking at the UK or US governments. Yeah, let, let us talk briefly about uh, the corona pandemic. It's often said in the last couple of months that corona has meant a sort of new renewed attention for for the role of the state and the the strong the strong state even some of our liberal more right-wing uh, politicians in the Netherlands, for example, call for sort of a new form of a social democracy, uh, a strong state. How optimistic are you that, that Corona will change something in the long run as well with regard to rentier capitalism? Yeah, not optimistic at all. I mean, I think that, you know, rentier capitalism requires a strong state. I mean, all of the, all of the, or if not a strong state, then certainly a very interventionist state. You know, so all of the, interventions that I touched on briefly earlier and that I discuss at length in the book that historically have enabled the flourishing of the rentier in the UK that have that have kind of precipitated the rentierization of the UK economy. They're all state they're all state-led initiatives, privatization, you know, strong protection for private asset, private property rights, you know, strong intellectual property rights. Uh, protection, generous tax treatments, you know, that's all about the state, right? And so this, the state is the central institution for the erection and defense of a, of a rentier economy. And so the idea that, that simply by having, you know, you know a, a, a more interventionist or stronger state, that that's in some sense necessarily better for, you know, progressive, um, for progressive, uh, measures progressive outcomes i think is, is 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 kind of fallacious you know this you know the the state can and does act in all sorts of different ways some of which might be beneficial but there's there's no necessity to that you know i think it's i think it's highly unlikely that the that the pan, that the pandemic uh, would would necessarily lead to better outcomes in that regard and certainly there's no evidence that anything that's happened so far will will, will lead in that direction are there countries that lead by example that are doing quite well in 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 dealing with these issues? I really don't know the answer to that question. Help us out, Brett. We are in need for we we are in need for something uh, utopian, something optimistic. What can we do? What well, I'll give you I'll give you one very small example, but I don't want to generalize from it because I would be doing so on completely speculative grounds. But if you look at Norway, for example, if you so one as I said earlier, one of the sectors that I talk about in one of the chapters of the book is natural resources and natural resource rentierism. And in the UK case, you know, since the early, since the, since the 1970s, the, the kind of the central component of natural resource rentierism has been oil and, has been oil and gas, uh, particularly in the North Sea. And, you know, from, from about the mid 1980s onwards, the level of taxation that the UK state imposed upon hydrocarbon extraction from the North Sea was pretty much was lower than pretty much anywhere else in the world. So, you know, if you think about the the amount of money that is generated by one barrel of oil, the state from the mid 1980s onwards, the UK state took a lower share of that income than pretty much any anywhere else in the world. You know, in some places the state takes 90% in the UK from the 80s onwards it was taking maybe 20-30%. Well, if you look at Norway, Norway has always taxed hydrocarbon production much more um, aggressively and I would say in turn progressively than in a place like the UK. And it's because of that that Norway has the, its well-known sovereign wealth fund that 
has been able to invest around the world in such a way as to make Norway across the board a relatively wealthy country in the way that hasn't happened in the UK because those those spoils have been captured by the by the private sector. Now, I, you know, I don't want to say that that Norway much more generally has dealt with rentierism in a more progressive way than in the UK, but I certainly think in terms of hydrocarbon taxation, it, it has with demonstra- demonstrably beneficial consequences for the country and for its population as a whole. You know, those you know those those gains have not been captured by only a small sub- subset of the, of the Norwegian population. Levels of, of income inequality in Norway are much, much lower than they are in the UK, and GDP per capita is much, much higher. What would you advise the Dutch prime minister, for example, or more on a local level, the mayor of Rotterdam or the mayor of any big European city, if they turned to you and said, I want to fix this once and for all? I think, I think, as I said earlier, I think, um, you know, two of the most tangible things that can be done uh, are relate to taxation and ownership transformation. You know, it's a taxation of assets and ownership transformation away, you know, away from the private sector. So making sure that, you know, more of society's valuable economic assets, are, you know, locally as well as potentially nationally, are are not necessarily owned by private sector actors and do not therefore become kind of grist to the rontier mill. And so I think both of those things are things that are very, very tangible. And so, you know, for a a local politician to talk about uh, taxation of assets and to talk about potentially taking some assets back into, you know, the hands of the municipality rather than being owned, you know, by, by default by the private sector would be two very tangible and visible things. Brad, uh, Thijs and I uh, are both around our 40s. Five years ago, I, I bought a house, a small yeah. part of the city of Rotterdam. I'm really proud that I've been able to buy a house as a freelance uh, journalist and program maker. Um, yeah, it's pretty impressive. My big dream, uh, however, is to buy another house and to uh, let this house be my pension uh, in yep. the long run. This technically uh, will make me a rentier. Uh, yep. Am I a bad person? For that <laughs> fantastic question some people probably would say you are i definitely don't think you are you know as i as i said at the outset my critique of frontier capitalism is not a moral economic critique at all it's a political economic critique i don't think it i don't think frontier i don't think the frontier dominance of the economy leads to good outcomes but i would never i would never criticize someone for trying to get by and do well for themselves within the existing political economic context that exists. I think you can both be a critic of the system, but also try to survive and potentially even prosper within that system. I don't, to me, I don't see that as, as, as necessarily contradictory positions. But you would no. at the same time advise the Dutch government to make it difficult for me to own two houses. I would absolutely do that. I would encourage the Dutch government uh, and other governments to much more aggressively tax rentierism of all forms. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen and myself, Thijs Barendsen. Music is composed by Plak Studio. 
Technical assistance is provided by Lieven Heremans. And graphic design is by Studio Spaas. De dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fund NL and the municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and check our website, thedependance.eu, for new podcast episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.